Blog Talk Radio. of Inside Thrill Radio. Today's show is called Three of Tomorrow's Hot Authors Today with hosted by author Jenny Milchman. She is going to have author Walt Gregg, Christina Kovac, and Mark Leggett on the show tonight. Also, we want to let you know that all the shows are brought to you by Kensington Books, so please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their authors and their works. So without any further ado, Jenny Take it away. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Inside Thrill Radio. I am thrilled to have three guests with me tonight on Inside Thrill, which is a joint production between international thriller writers and Suspense Radio of Suspense Magazine. We get to have three ITW favorites with us tonight, even though two of them are brand new to ITW. And the reason they're favorites already is because a huge part of international thriller writers is the debut authors program. We have two debut authors with us, and we have a member of the debut program committee as well, all talking about their new thrillers and old thrillers and this career of ours that we call thriller writing. So welcome, Christina Kovac, Walt Bragg, and Mark Legat. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. We have people calling in. Now, Walt is calling in from Texas to be on the show. Christina is from Washington, D.C., and Mark has come the furthest to join us all the way from Scotland. They have some really exciting things to tell you about junior releases, and Mark is in the interesting position of sort of building a career in thriller writing. And what we're going to talk about tonight is how you go from getting that first book out there and the pre-steps, the steps leading up to that first book, to then becoming an established thriller author. This, you know, I don't think our business is quite as much mayhem and violence as you'll see on the pages of these three thrillers, but it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty thorny road. And I'd like to talk to each author about that. So let me introduce their books really quickly first. Walt Bragg's The Red Line is out just two weeks ago. It's a military thriller that he's going to be able to describe you know, better than I ever could. But I will say that when Walt's Red Line came out, he was honored to receive a Boston Star review from PW. And I just saw this morning, thanks to Walt's lovely wife, that it's number one on the local author list at Book People Bookstore, which is a terrific bookstore in Austin, Texas. We also have Christina Coe back on the show with her thriller called The Cutaway. It's an interesting blend of domestic suspense and political intrigue. I had mentioned that Christina's from D.C. I'm going to ask Christina a little bit about genre blending and cross-genre books. Uh, the Cutaway was blurbed by two of my favorites, um, Joe Cinder and Megan Abbott, Abbott, which I always think is very cool. And Michael Lagat has two books in his series that features Connor Montrose out. And the first book that Mark published was Names of the Dead in 2015, and The London Page was out in 2016, which means that Mark pulled off the incredible feat of being a debut author and then having a book out the following year. Not everybody can do this. So let's talk with Mark, starting with Mark, about that journey you took to get the first book out there, Names of the Dead, and then what happened after that? 
Well, the first one actually, it was a, really a case of timing, uh, because the first uh, book that came out, Names of the Dead, happened kind of just around the, the first uh, of uh, in New York that I went to, and it was so soon after that I wasn't able to um, present that book as my debut, like it just because of the dates of the, the debut classes. So it was a whole year to go before I uh, came to my next Thermofest uh, in New York, when I became a debut author. So I had a whole year of, uh, of networking and preparation and talking to the people and getting the book out there before I actually got there. So by the time I was ready to come down to the next Thermofest, I had another book out. I kind of had a year's advantage on most book um and most authors approaching the ITW, the daily author, just because we of the timing. But it became very handy in the end. It did give me some advantage. Yeah, I I think you're being humble, Mark. I mean, I hear you and that accident of timing, but having two books ready to go, even though you did have that, you know, sort of calendar advantage, that's not easy. And tell us, let's back up a little bit. Tell us a little bit about Connor Montrose and how he came to be. Um, It's a rip-roaring case, you said, names of the dead. I mean, it kind of starts from, you know, right at the starting gate, and then he's off and running. So tell us a little bit about how he came to you, and then I think we'll understand more about how he was able to have two books together so fast. Wow. Well, I, but, you know, I have been writing. I, I didn't have a name for my character. I knew it would come to me when I got there. I knew his name would come out. But I had my character, and I spent probably about four or five years traveling around Europe because of business. And I was in so many different places. I was in Paris and Toulouse and Amsterdam and Berlin and Hamburg and London. And remember all these places. And I was, I was staying for, for you know, little, little pieces of time in these various places. So I could absorb some of the local culture. And I always liked to read up on the local history of the places where I was staying. Often it was a very boring hotel, a very boring existence of just going to the hotel and going to the office and going home. So I had plenty of time to write books and pick up stories. And I had, I, all, I assiduously uh, have a, a notebook with me at all times, and I, I write obsessively and assiduously, assiduously in these notebooks. Uh, and stories would come, stories would go. So when it came to a point about after this four or five years of travel, when I sat down and went, right, I'm going to do this now. I am going to stop talking about it. I'm going to write a book. I had a whole stack of notebooks that I'd written. I had ideas and characters and places and histories all there. So it was, for me, it was a case of going through all this stuff and saying, somewhere in here is a story, and I'll pick it out. And my, my character came out uh, as a person who would have some technical knowledge, some um, international experience, uh, and be able to deduce and be part of the story, but also be, be, be the driver of things would happen for a reason, and his reactions to events would be that reason. And often it's an emotional, uh, sub-emotional reaction that would make it happen. Yeah. So, <clears throat> his, his character, Carmen Jones, came from that. His actual, his actual name came from, um, do you remember a, 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 a film years ago called Highlander? And the main character in it was a guy called Connor McLeod. And my flatmate loved him. And she had a, she had a big poster of him above um, the fireplace, and it's him and his kilt being caught on the cloud. Uh, and I thought, Connor, that's a good name, and I needed a surname. Uh, and I used Montrose from a historical Scottish character, a very fascinating character, um, Montrose, who was a general you know, hundreds of years ago, a, a really fascinating character. So I, when I thought Connor Montrose, and I wrote it down, I thought, that works, that scans, that's a good name. I thought, does that suit my character? I thought, yes, it does. Because although the character is American, there are many Americans who have Celtic heritage um, mm-hmm. you know, from anywhere from Britain, Wales, and Ireland, and Scotland. So it's a perfectly reasonable name for a character. Uh, mm-hmm. my oh, yeah. Originally, he didn't actually, he wasn't supposed to be American. He was supposed to be half American and half British. But it made sense as the story went on, uh, that his backstory, I thought, I know who this guy is now. And he's called Colonel Jones, and his kind of backstory kind of came to me as the story written, so it all makes sense now. And if you read the book, you understand where he's coming from. 
Yeah, you do. I think I, it's fascinating, the origins of these. And one of the things that you're saying that interests me is, well, first of all, so Mark, who's the author of, we're talking about both names of the dead in the London case, blurred Walfrat's debut, The Red Line. I love the interesting connections in the thriller world. And it's interesting to me that the evolution you're describing, Mark, involves notebooks and a lot of advanced preparation and even having to look yeah. out with your years involved that time. And, well, with the red line, I know that you had a great deal of kind of years in before we're holding this finished product, this beautiful book that's got a helicopter, like, whirring across the cover. Tell us a little bit, as Mark did, about how you, you know, bridge the gap between not one word and 528 pages of political and military intrigue. Um, well, actually, um, Jenny, the, yeah, the book goes back a long way. So let me first say to the audience that it's being called a World War III epic. It's about a war between the United States and Russia, and I was honored to have Mark read it. He actually liked it. Um, <laughs> and that was nice. You know, we liked it quite, quite a lot. Um, and, uh, yeah, I actually came up with the idea when I was serving at United States Military Command headquarters in Germany, uh, all back in the middle of the first Cold War. But I'm not a writer. I don't think of myself as a writer even now. I, I, uh, but I, I found the story because I was being involved in, oh, a lot of, of high-level war games, and I would see, you know, I would see plans for the defense of Europe. I would, I would hear things, you know, so these things just kind of were there, and the story appeared, and honestly, uh, I didn't have the time or the ability to write it back then, so I waited, uh, stuck it somewhere in the back of my brain, and just went on with life, and finally, uh, by the mid-1990s, I was growing quite concerned about America's attitude toward war and the, and the casual nature we were developing, and which continues until today. And so I thought, I've got to write this. Uh, and it took me, it, it is a lengthy book, uh, although I'm told uh, uh, one of uh, uh, your folks at ITW, at IMAR, said, I don't know how he did it, but he made a 500-page book read like a short story. Um, it reads fast, so, yeah, it really does. Yeah, so we, uh, you know, we wrote it. Uh, it took me about a year to get a real rough draft and about three years to actually have something on paper that I wasn't too embarrassed to show, show somebody else. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that happens. You know. And so I, I entered it in a writing contest uh, that was associated with a conference, and I ended up getting second place. And one of the editors there, uh, this was 1997, one of the editors there, uh, was from uh, what was in uh, Putnam, Berkeley, and he read the first chapter, and he said, yes, I want to read the manuscript. So I uh, didn't have an agent, you know, nothing like that. So I sent him the manuscript, and much to my surprise, three, uh, three months later, the phone rings on a Monday morning, and it's the editor, and the first thing he says is, how in the world did you not get first place? But then from there... Uh, <laughs> He, he said, this book's incredible. You're a remarkable talent. I really want it. Um, and um, so he said, but it's a bit controversial, and so, it, you know, it may be some issues. And sure enough, eight, eight days later, he called me back and said his publisher rejected it. Um, and so I, I continued trying to find an agent, trying to find an editor, and couldn't get anything done. I wrote a second manuscript, tried with that, nothing. So after, oh, I don't know, four or five years of just one rejection after another, that was just enough. So I took the two manuscripts and stuck them on a shelf, and they got nice and dusty for a while uh, with the promise to my wife and, and the folks who had read it uh, early that I would, once I retired, I would try again. And sure enough, we did that. Uh, in 2014, uh, I stumbled across the Thorfest website. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the conference for me. Uh, I, I write thrillers and look at this thing. So we immediately signed up. Um, and uh, I went up there and participated in Pitch Fest. I'm, a, I'm an actual uh, Thriller Fest success story because I went to Pitch Fest, mm -hmm. uh, pitched a number of agents, had a lot of interest. Um, but the, the big break was actually the next day uh, on, uh, the, on Friday of the conference, the editor who had loved it so much 17 years earlier was on a panel. I didn't even know it until I, that day. 
And so I went in and, and, and reintroduced myself. And, of course, he didn't remember me, didn't remember the book after all those years. But I thanked him for uh, his kind words because I told him that they were the one thing that had kept me going. And um, uh, the next morning, somehow, at the debut author breakfast, he and I ended up having breakfast together alone. Uh, I was in there early uh, because I was volunteering, and I just was grabbing a breakfast and was sitting by myself in the back of this huge ballroom. And the next thing I know, I get a tap on the shoulder, and it's the editor. So two weeks later, uh, he said he wanted to see it again, and I scrambled one of the agents. And by that evening, I had an agent. Uh, she read uh, a quarter of the book, and and uh, uh, by that evening, by that evening, I had an agent, and. Um, um, then uh, 15 weeks later, we sold the book. So it only took me 15 weeks to, to sell the book in 17 years. So I love that story. I love that story because in addition to international thriller writer success story, yes, it's exactly what you just said. 15 weeks and 17 years to sell a book. Um, to become an overnight, you know, publication story. And it really <laughs> says a lot about this business. So. Let's depart a little bit, a little bit. I knew I knew Walt's story, so I kind of had him as a plant because he's certainly a study in perseverance. <laughs> Christina Kovac's story, I don't know at all. I read the cutaway. I didn't even know what a cutaway was until I read this book. I read the, and I'm not going to give it away because it's a, it's a neat little slice of of the career background that feeds into this story, and it's and it's a great title as well. But, Christina, I don't know your story to debut status. Um, your book is out from Atria. It's a really fascinating blend. I kept calling it cross-genre as I was reading because, you know, in addition to really giving us a TV news kind of background and what Washington, D.C. is like and the political intrigue and, you know, there, there's great things about Washington, D.C., and they did come through in your story, but there's also... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say no more because we already got more political on Inside World today, thanks to Walt, than we usually do. Um, it was an insightful moment, Walt. But, Christina, I mean, you give us both that sort of political intrigue and also a real lot of human details in your character. And one of the parts I like the best was how she observed the male anchor and talked about his makeup and his hair. And you sort of see this world from the point of view of your character, which I found fascinating. So... Tell us the lead-up to getting the cutaway, both written and then published. So I worked in television news for a long time, and um, right out of college I interned. Um, I went to the University of Maryland, and I wanted to be a Washington Post reporter in the worst way. And my um, professor said, you know, newspapers are dying. This is back in the 90s. So I accidentally fell into TV and loved it. And um, I probably... I probably stayed in TV and never um, had the opportunity to sit down and write fiction. It's such a fast-paced world, you know, you're working 60 hours a week, you're just totally immersed. I mean, the life of Virginia Knightley in this story is everything's happening all the time and you don't have time to eat. I mean, that's just really how it is. So I would have never been able to write if I hadn't had children. Um, my husband also works in television. He works for the network. He's a, uh, a White House. Um, he's in the White House uh, Correspondents Association. But uh, although he's an engineer and he travels all over the world, and he does, um, you know, uh, does the president's travels. So he's gone a lot, and we were just barely making it with two small children. And um, during the Zacharias Musawi trial, it was. Um, I guess back in 2005, he was the 20th hijacker. I was covering that oh, yeah. trial, and um, I got stuck late, and the bird came out, and it was a total nightmare. I mean, not the story. You can handle the story, but my children got locked up in daycare. I couldn't get to them. Oh, and I remember that. just, and I was on the phone. I had Brian Williams in one ear. I had the, a U.S. attorney coming out from the courthouse, um, you know, getting ready to make the statement about the verdict. There are helicopters flying overhead. There are federal agents with assault weapons walking everywhere. There's 50 news people, like, breathing down your neck. And I'm like, does anybody else have a phone? I have to get somebody to get my kids. 
and my mm. friend Jackie Benson, who was a reporter, said, "Take my phone." It was like the most, <laughs> it was the most heroic moment. It's like giving someone your, you know, right arm. Here, take my phone. And I had crime wings in one ear, my phone in the other ear, just begging people to pick up my kids. I couldn't find anybody, and um, and so I just remember driving home on the Beltway, just crying, you know, just thinking, I can't do this. So that was kind of the last straw. Um, I, I worked, I kept working, but we were um, cutting back hours. And I told my husband, I said, you know, I think maybe I could write a novel. I mean, how hard can it be? <laughs> you know, and he's like, oh, sure, great. You know, it was five years writing um, just to try and figure out how to write a novel. And then I got to the point where I thought, you know, this is pretty good. Let me send it out, you know, just. I'll send out this thing called a query, I guess. You know, I got a photo of books, tried to figure out how to write a query. You know, I did the total typical journalist thing where I figured out who are the 50 best agents in New York. I mean, how arrogantly stupid is that? You know, I mean, of course, all <laughs> And they were going to respond to you in a day. Immediately, right? <laughs> so I wrote this query, and I sent it out to, you know, I think – I sent out 50 queries at once. I, I sent, and I did the really awful thing, which people should know. I multiple queried Writer's House. Like, I didn't know you didn't do that. So I sent to every single agent at Writer's House because it said they were the best one. So this guy named Dan Conaway, who ended up being my agent, he called me, and he said, um, you know, I love the first two lines. Um, I... You had me the first two lines, and then I thought, well, let me stop, because he had never taken a debut alter before. Um, sure. And but, but by the second chapter, I knew that I could work with you. There was a music. He talked, Dan's very artistic. He said, there's hmm. music to your writing that I could hear, and I just knew um, that I liked you. Tell me about yourself. And so um, I told him that I like baseball, and it was love at first sight. So I think he's a Mets fan, which is really <laughs> But other than that, um, he's like my soulmate, and uh, Dan Conway is um, – I knew immediately I went to sign with him. I didn't leave it, though, of course. It was like when I first met my husband. I was like, you're really just too good to be true. So I, like, kept asking people about him. Um, it was the same with Dan. I said, okay, so – um, I believe that you're really Dan Conway because I see that you want to number your me from. But um, I need to, you know, talk to some of your writers because it got to the point where, like, I wanted him and he wanted me, but I didn't believe it because the process seemed too surreal. So he um, had M.J. Rose uh, and Marsha Clark call me and just kind of tell me that I would be insane to sign with anyone else other than him. And so after I got off the phone with MJ, she was funny. She said, um, you know, if you're going to buy a diamond, I mean, you're going to buy it from Harry Winston, right? And I'm like, I don't even know what Harry Winston is. <laughs> I'm like, Google it really fast. I'm like, oh, okay. I get the metaphor. Right. So I was like, okay, I'll sign. <laughs> you know, but, um, and so it was really, it took a really long time. And I think a guardian angel somehow, you know, dropped on my shoulder and got me to Dan. And it has been uh, a work of love revising the cutaway with Dan Conway because he's really, really brilliant. And he's, like, a better feminist than I am. He <laughs> he said to me, you know, there, there are parts of this book where you're holding back on this character. Why are you holding back on this character? Um, the, it's the protagonist is a, a professional, is a woman. Um, she's an executive producer. And... I said, I don't know. And he said, you know, she's the smartest person in the room. And then I had to figure out why I was afraid of that. So mm-hmm. I went out for a jog, and I figured it out, and I came back, and I called, and I said, you're right. Give me, give me another month. I'll fix it. So we did. Right. That's fascinating. It's an interesting question. It's interesting for this show in particular. Let's talk with our two gentlemen and our uh, woman guests. You know, Mark and Walt, you've certainly written – novels of real political intrigue, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that they are what I would call kind of typically male thrillers. You know, there's a lot, especially Mark and yours, they are, you know, traveling all over the world, and there's, you know, there's, there's different settings, and it's nonstop action, and, you know, in the first scene, we get the gun, and, or the second chapter, I guess, of Names of the Dead, you know, he's rolling on the floor, and he's taking aim, and Walt, I mean, you've got a scenario here that, 
literally affects the entire world. And Christina, even though, you know, I'm not saying that that's less true of yours or that it's any less action type, it's not, but we really got sort of an intimate look in the cutaway as well at emotion and personality. And I do think there's a lot of emotion in, in Mark Seary's character, Connor. So let's talk a little bit with each author, and we'll start again with Mark, about, I guess, the role of gender and gender norms and how you think of your books as departing or staying close to conventions of the genre. And let's start with Mark. Hmm, convention of the genre. Well, I, I, you know, I, I was asked a similar question about two months ago when I was doing a, a question and answer session. And, I, I, you know, I, I knew the answer in my head, but I couldn't express it uh, quickly enough. I, I wanted to say, well, give me a couple of days and 2,000 words and I'll let you know, but I couldn't know. It was on the yeah. set and do that. But the only way yeah. I think about it, I've kind of worked out how I do it. I, I do stay within the conventions, but I like to subvert the conventions in that the female, in both books, there is a different female character. And they're not there for eye candy in any way whatsoever. They're tough characters, and I use them to uh, undermine the emotion of the male character and drag out of him what his um, driver is, what is his raison d'etre for doing what he does. And I like to do that, and um, I'm not saying I'm, I'm absolutely good at it at the moment, because I've kind of, I, I kind of discovered that I was doing it kind of subliminally to myself. I wasn't aware that I was doing it, but I was. So, in the first book and then to more in the second, uh, I do stay with the convention, but uh, I like to just poke it and tease it a little bit and just slip it over a little bit, just, just to wind things up, just to keep things interesting. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah I, that kind of macho male and the sort of beautiful female, that doesn't work for me. I, it's just, oh, I'm going to use a word that I shouldn't use a radio. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, but I... I think what you're saying is the relationship is very important yes. in, your, in both books. It's the relationship and not just the scene where they eventually land in bed or whatever. There's an actual yeah. connection there. There's a relationship, yes. There's a relationship between the male and female character. And it's a close right. one, but it's not necessarily a stable relationship. Right. And I made right. sure, and what I really wanted was the, the, to subvert the whole the genre thing, to make sure that my male character was emotionally more unstable and emotionally um, unsure yeah. and perhaps weaker, yeah. yes, okay. than the female character. The female character, mm -hmm. this, this one question I did get asked at uh, an event called Bloody Scotland, which is Scotland's uh, answer to Power Fest, it's a uh, right. crime and power convention. And right. one of the things was, why do you write such strong female characters? So, mm. I'm from Scotland. I don't know any Greek ones. They're all marketed. So, That's great. That's really great. I just don't know any. Yeah. So, when my female character walked in the room, she kicked the bloody door in and said, Hello, how are you doing? Kept the There's no marketing around. So, the female characters, they are the ones, they are the subversive ones. That's, that's what that So, that's how I keep it in line to be an interesting character, but subverting at the same time for effect, for emotion, I think. Right. Subversive of the genre conventions. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah. I think that is very true. And it's interesting to put sort of a global twist on it, and I don't know what that says about the United States. But yeah. let's bounce over to – actually, we're going to go to Christina now, and then we'll come back to you, Walt, because I'm starting to feel as if that's sort of the natural order of this continuum we're talking about. So – Christina, in the cutaway, I mean, yes, we've, you know, it's interesting that you said it was born by this sort of last straw that broke the camel's back with your kids being, you know, locked away in daycare and you realize you have to do something different career-wise because to a certain extent, all of that emotion and, um, you know, backstory of the character is there in the cutaway. So talk a little bit about how you see genre and where you go from it. Well, you know, one of the things that happened with Dan when he called me, uh, my agent, uh, he said, what on earth do you read? Because it was so kind of blended. And I think that one of the things that sort of happens when you're a journalist is you're, you're a generalist. You don't really specialize in anything. You know, so so I think that, that I was reading a lot of um, 
female crime fiction writers. I was reading a lot of stories, uh, um, things about um, psychopaths, and um, um, I was reading uh, just a lot of um, political um, theory. And I, I think one of the things that I've seen over, you know, the years working in news in D.C. anyway is that domestic violence is so much a societal problem. It's a culture thing. I mean, like, we could solve it tomorrow, right? Mm. We don't want to. And we don't elect people who want to solve it. And we don't, right, you know, we don't enforce the laws that could solve it. And so, so there's, you know, there's the sense of being a woman alone in the world, which I was for a very long time. I didn't get married until my 30s. Um, yeah. I mean, I lived on Capitol Hill. I lived around the corner from, uh, you know, there was around the corner there was a woman who was abducted. The first um, story that I worked on uh, was ended up being a serial killer. I mean, there were um, three girls who were um, three young girls, two sisters and another girl, um, who they were all abducted and um, murdered horrifically. I worked on the Chandra Lee story, which is um, a story. So, so, and those pictures, those stories that you work on, you learn about the victims very intimately. You learn about things um, that that don't get reported. You know, what you report is just the top layer of things. So there's all this kind of sense of helplessness about you know, being a female journalist in a world where, you know, girls with braces are being abducted from the front porch and murdered horrifically. And that never really, really goes away. And then there's also the sense of, you know, you being alone as a a female journalist going out there working in the world. And, you know, there are assumptions that, you know, if you got really good information from, say, a law enforcement person, how did you get it? That kind of thing. I mean, but if I would have you know, had a relationship with every single person I've used from, I wouldn't have made deadlines. I mean, it's like, come on, guys, really? You know, so there's this whole sense of being a woman in the world. And I wanted to kind of just tell the truth about that and also have a very vulnerable woman who, you know, I mean, I think that she would love to have love. I mean, I think she says at a certain point um, she just, she would love to be a romantic. She just couldn't afford it. You know, and I think right. that's, that's what's true of a lot of professional women that I've worked with. Yeah, and it really comes through in the book. I think that you are talking about two different worlds in their class, and you know, the personal and the uh, <clears throat> the industry and political. So, yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, so Walt, I don't, you know, in some ways, I think the red line is a perfect example of the genre, and I think the reviews and the, um, you know, attention you've been getting since it came out to a certain extent, say that. But tell us a little bit about your thoughts on genre and where the red line fits or doesn't fit. Well, I think my book is very, very different for the military thriller subgenre. Uh, the, uh, in okay. my mind, the subgenre had gotten distorted by the techno thriller, and mm-hmm. um, I, I'm a Vietnam uh, War veteran, and uh, I know better than to be in love with technology and weapons. It's the people of war that matter. So my intent was to provide a story that would drag us back into the reality of, of not spending 500 pages or 800 pages, in the cases of some of those books, and the techno thrillers, uh, glorifying every little button and switch on every new weapon. Uh, you know, I wasn't writing an Army field manual here like some of these things almost right. became. I was yeah. very focused on the characters. And what's showing is, in fact, um, because it is being described in reviews as having incredibly compelling characters, what's showing is that women are liking the book as much as men. And so, in fact, my, my one audience that's, that I've had even the smallest problem with is the hardcore techno thriller person because what I did was while the weapons have to be there you have to have some tanks and some assault weapons and all that stuff um, that what I did is so simplified them uh, because nothing mattered to me but the story and when the weapons got in the way the story prevailed and so um, I wrote it for average people not techno thriller fans 
And I think that's, that's dragging the genre back where I hope it will be. And, in fact, um, the Publishers Weekly Review, as you mentioned, was a box-starred review, which is only given to about one out of 100 books, I believe. Uh, so yeah. we made the, the top 1%. Um, and in talking to the reviewer afterwards, he actually said, this is the best book ever written in this subgenre. Ooh. Better than Clancy, ah. better than Hackett. Yeah, he actually said that. And um, so... You know, it, it's resonating with the reviewers and with the vast majority of readers. Um, so, you know, I think we're on the right track. And, in fact, the Publishers Weekly liked the book so much that uh, in late March they ran a two-page interview with me as a debut author, which never happened. So, um, yes, yeah, that was wonderful. But so, Walt, are you – that's interesting that you're saying that you think the response, which I have – and is wonderful, and congratulations. Um, you think it's coming because the book stands out as a sort of departure from where the genre had gone, and I have to admit that that was not my read of it. Was that intentional on your part? Did you have that in mind when you were writing, or did you sort of see it after you, you know, you had the manuscript and there was obviously this gap of years, and did you sort of see that the genre was going in a direction you didn't like and then decide to, you know, revise and take the book in a slightly different way? Uh, yeah, yes and no. I mean, certainly, I uh, don't get me wrong, I love some of the techno stories, some of the early Clancy stuff, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it to me it got tiring, and to me it was misplaced to to let that focus move away from, like I said, the one thing that matters. It doesn't matter if a weapon blows up, but if the person who's operating it is killed, then it does matter. Right. So we right. try to get away from that as much as we can. As you, as you saw, Jenny, we still have the weapons in there, but... The average person who's not been in the military uh, or you know, yeah. who's not a, a techno floor junkie won't even know that I, I manipulated quite a bit of that. Uh, just because I want the story to work the way the story was the thing that mattered. It was right. providing these uh, men and women characters. There were both strong men and women characters in the book uh, that were very, very relatable and that that you could join them in their journey and, and get something out yeah. of the book. I was, try- I was actually... Heaven forbid, I was trying to entertain but actually say something, which has become <laughs> difficult to find in writing nowadays. Uh, it's nice. Summer reads are great, but once in a while you've got to have something with some real bite to it, and, and this one will bite you. So it's interesting. So we're talking with Christina Kovacs, who's the author of The Cutaway, Walt Grass, who's the author of The Red Line, and Mark Lagasse, who's the author of both Names of the Dead and The London Cage. And... It's interesting, I, you know, I always say Inside Thrill Radio surprises me every single show that Mark and Christina and Walt all are talking in a way about subverting the conventions of the genre or at least blending them and coming up with something altogether new. And that's what's so exciting, I think, about talking with new authors, um, you know, that each person, you know, what is this arrogance we all have to think we can put another book out there. It's not like there aren't enough books, but each book really does do something different. And I think that's true of all three of these titles. Uh, I would like to talk with each author a little bit about how they found their way to their specific publishers. Uh, Walt went into that a little bit. But what, you know, what, and in that case, once you found your way to your publisher and you sort of have that match made in heaven, you know, what surprised you about having a book come out? And now you're a real published author. In Mark Lugat's case, he's the author of two. What surprises you most about making the shift into this industry and being with a publisher? And Mark, in particular, I'm going to give you a question about fledgling press because I know you're in the UK and so you're different than the U.S. market, but I'm really impressed with the books they're putting out, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit, you know, so it's a two-part question. How did you find your way to this particular publisher, Walters, with um, Random Penguin House? <laughs> Random Penguin House, that's terrible. As we're alive and <laughs> Walters with Berkeley with Penguin Random House, and Christina lives with Atrio, which is part of Simon and Schuster. And Mark Legat is with Fledgling Craft. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the experiences with the publishers and, um, you know, what surprised you about becoming an author. And let's start with Christina. Um, I guess I had no idea how it happened. Dan did everything. Um, I was surprised how quickly it happened. 
he told me when the manuscript was ready to go, he said, um, you know, be available for the next week. And um, I guess I interviewed with a lot of different publishers, and I was surprised how much I liked them all. Um, hmm. I I, um, I mean, I talked to folks at Random House that were super. I talked to this fellow from Echo Books who was just really amazing. But I fell in love with Dawn Davis, who um, she is, uh, a remarkable woman who's really interested in different voices and world of story, and she did, um, she edited Edward P. Jones' Known World, which is, um, I got a Pulitzer, I said, a Nobel, I don't know, that's something, um, but that's a historical, uh, literary fiction, um, so she kind of does a little bit of everything, um, and she had just done Thomas Mullen, um, Dark Town, which I just thought was amazing book. So I kind of fell in love with her, and um, we were lucky to get the preempt from her. Um, and then I just, I had been working with Dan for so long that he and I had a way of talking to each other so that when I went to edit with Dawn, she was just so nice and sweet and uh, and, and just very um, kind of dignified about everything. I mean, Dan and I would be like, you know, crap, this doesn't work. You know, we talk to each other like that. <laughs> and like say things that I actually don't want to say on recording. And Dawn would always be like, well, you know, I think that maybe. And I didn't understand that. So she said, come on up to New York. So I went up to New York, and we sat down, and we went to the manuscript. She introduced me to people who would be, my, you know, do my um, publicity and marketing, the guy who did my book cover. And it was really fascinating to see her. And and so then we clicked. And, um, and it's just been... I guess the thing that surprises me the most, though, is that really my life hasn't changed. You know, you kind of think, oh, I'm going to be a published author, and that'll be something really different. And I was afraid of that. Nothing's changed. My kitchen is still a mess. You know, I still have laundry waiting for me downstairs. Um, I have to somehow find a way to write, though, amidst all this. But other than that, it's the same. Well, we're gonna, that's interesting. We're going to talk about what's next for each of you, so I'm going to actually hold off on that a bit. But that's interesting. The, you know, the yacht is not cruising up to your door to pick you up and life goes on, except now you've got this book out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it'll get there. But no, it is interesting. It actually feeds exactly into our conversation about going. Uh, from debut to multi-published author. But let's, let's hold off on that a little bit. Mark, tell us a little bit about Fledgling Press and having two books out with them. You're working on the third, I know. Um, tell yeah. us a little bit about your journey there. My, my initial journey was a full circle right back to where I was physically standing with one of my friends. And when I used to smoke uh, in Edinburgh, I used to go for a smoke outside uh, standing on the street. And my, my friend of mine, Paul Kane, his wife, uh, Claire, uh, was running a small publishing company. And, and of course, he knew I was writing a book, and we were kind of talking, we always talked, we were good, good friends for years. But they didn't do crime, and I wasn't really interested in them, because they didn't do crime. But we talked about all the time, about publishing and books and anything that was going on, it was all fantastic. Um, when I got to the stage where uh, I got an agent, which was uh, an entire... <laughs> huge program in itself after about yeah. 500 queries about four years of trying I eventually got an agent in New York which is fantastic but they cut a long story short he couldn't sell my book and they liked it but didn't want it because you know you're um, a TV author and you're not in America and so they can't see how the market is going to work etc etc et it was too difficult thing. Um, my agent was a great guy but he, he left agenting and because he was offered some top job in Penguin, I think he's now in Harper. So, um, but just before he left, um, I was outside having a smoke with my friend again, and he said, you know what, um, I think Claire wants to do crime now. I thought, does she? What does she really? So, I spoke to the agent, he said, well, you know, they're, you're, they're local, you know them, why don't we just sell the book to them? Okay. So we did, and the Fleisley took the book on, and he did, I, did, I didn't have to tell her about it, because and bored her, her husband silly for years about it, so they were quite, you know, they, they knew what they were getting, um, and it moved very quickly uh, into uh, publication, because I had it so many times, um, and she gave it one sort of better thing, she's very particular, and off we went, and it, it was impressed. It, it moved very quickly. 
the way they work essentially is that they have a network and uh, what they do uh, so they've solved perfectly for them it's all about quality and getting to the market because they, they, they live on the last book and the last book people think is not good enough then your reputation goes down so in Scotland the, the, the whole small publishing industry is supported quite strongly by the Scottish Government so there are grants uh, available for all sorts of small presses and even people, uh, you get grants to the government to write, to, to travel, to talk about books, to go to other countries, to talk about books. It's, it's, it's very strongly supported. Um, so they're able to, yeah, it's, it's really good. So they, they, they look after the art side of this, you know, the whole book site. Um, it's, it's, that's, that's, that, that happens a lot in Europe, um, that, that uh, government support for the arts, especially books. Yeah. So, um, they are able now to go out and connect with other small publishers uh, across Europe. And I know, I don't have any hard views at the moment, but I do know that they're talking to um, an agent in uh, somebody who represents for Austria and Hungary and uh, Germany oh. and all sorts of oh, things. Yeah, these things take time, but the, the smaller publishers network at the, you have the book festival in Frankfurt and uh, Hamburg yeah. and London. And they all get together, you know. But That's very interesting. I mean, it's wonderful to hear about support for the artist. And, and you know, yeah. I think it feeds in, especially once you do have two books out and then you're working on the third. It's really about maintaining that career as opposed to just crossing the, uh, you know, getting across that daisy line, which is a milestone. It does. And then you yeah. realize mm-hmm. it's kind of what Christina said. Now it's real life. And how do I make this in real life? So, Paul. You talked us a little bit about this incredibly serendipitous heading, you know, ending up with the editor at breakfast, um, you know, who you've spoken to so many years before. Tell us what surprised you about now you're actually holding the book. I mean, for you with the journey comprising so many years in a way, it's, you know, it's especially exciting, I would think. And tell us what surprised you about becoming a real published author, an RPA. Uh, what didn't? <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> every day is a new day, you know, and, and, and my book's only been out 13 days, so so every day still continues to be a new day. But from the moment we signed, you know, from the moment I got word from my agent, got that phone call, uh, it's been a real interesting journey. I have to admit that when the book arrived, I think I, I held it in my hands for about two days and went, oh, my God, it's actually a book. You know, it's not just this manuscript. And, and, um, and, you know, what has it? And I got so lucky because uh, I, I'm pretty sure, Jenny, you know my editor. It's Tom Hogan, who mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. vice president and editorial director for Berkeley Publishing Group, New American Library at Penguin Random House. Everybody at International Thriller Writers knows Tom. And um, yeah. and he is the, you know, the premier editor in, in this genre. And, uh, you know, he handles all the Tom Fancy books. He handles just huge writers, and then he handles me. So, um, <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, to be here. yeah, yeah. And so it's been interesting. I mean, it's, there are days, you know, like when they sent me my copy edits, uh, I had to email back to the, the assistant editor and say, okay, what do I do with these and how do I do it? You know, so it's, you have these embarrassing moments where you're, you're, you're the newbie. It's, it's like any new job, you know. Um, mm-hmm. you, your job is to listen and learn and, and try to not make the same mistake twice. And so um, that's kind of how it's been. It's just been a roller coaster. And every morning at this, I'll tell you, this is, I, I've, in the last 14 days, I've done 16 radio shows alone. And that's <laughs> just nuts. I mean, it's. Uh, it's the day the book came out, and I, I did five radio shows in two hours, and so it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, that it, they were like five minutes apart. It was a real, uh, right. real interesting effort for someone who, at that point, was just starting. You know, that morning I was starting my third radio show, and by the end of the day, I'd done seven. <laughs> so, uh, it, the whole thing is just interesting. You know, I just Saturday did my third uh, book signing. Um, I've got three more this week and more the week after that. And so you just – all I can say to the, the aspiring writers and those who are coming in is just be ready to be flexible. Do what they tell you. Um, you know, my especially with my editor, I certainly wasn't going to disregard his his proposals for edits. And, and it worked out wonderfully. Uh, we ended up doing two sets of edits. And, and after we finished the final um, sets, 
so I guess this was a year, year and a half ago, he called me up and he said, you know, I I hate reading a manuscript three times. And he said, but that didn't happen this time. I love the book again. And, and he said, I've been doing this for over 30 years, and I've read tons of manuscripts. He said that this one's really special. And so when you get that little bit of neat stuff every once in a while, most of the time it's just a grind, you know. Um, but you get some, some nice moments, and that was certainly one of them. And, um, you know, it's nice when you, you get the reviews. I mean, I got one Friday from the Providence uh, Journal newspaper in, in Rhode Island that was just unbelievable. They actually said the book has the makings of a classic, which for any author, those are the magic words, you know. It, it means it's yeah. not going to be around for just for another year or decade or whatever. I'm, I'm envisioning uh, poor college students 30 years from now being forced by their lit professors to read it. So uh, I'm struggling I'm about that. So, um, Well, it's a perfect segue. I mean, I very much hope that happens, but it really is a perfect segue because one of the things that certainly surprises me again and again is that having the book out is great, and like you said, Walt, hold it in your hands and you sleep with it and all that. And then what? You know, because as Christina pointed out, you know, nothing really changes. Everything changes, but nothing changes. And what do you go on to next? And Mark, you know, was lucky enough because of the time of uh, his Thriller Fest debut breakfast, you know, to be able to have two books out in two years, which is really, I think, in some ways, you know, sort of a dividing line between authors, you know. Some people really want to go on and hit that book that year mark, and some people feel like that's just not. That's not the right pace for them. Maybe they don't want to write at that, you know, that um, speed. Maybe they don't want, you know, there are authors with fantastic books that, yes, became classics, like The Help, who didn't even necessarily want to do a second book at all. And I'd like each of our authors to talk a little bit about what is literally next, what are you working on, if anything, and also how you feel about that question. You know, now you've each got at least one book under your belt, two in Mark's case, and where do you see your career going and where do you see the, you know, if that's a dividing line, you know, the book of your author, somebody like Big Child, who there's going to be a new Reacher novel every September, if that's one side of the dividing line and then the other side is we refer to uh, Catherine Stockton and the help, you know, where do you see yourself falling and sort of why. Let's start with, um, let's start with Walt. Oh, gosh, I wasn't ready for me. Okay, let's try this. Um, <laughs> Should we flip it? Yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, I do have a second novel with my editor right now, um, and I'm, oh, a third of a way through a third one. Um, but I, I don't know where I'm going. I, I think I, I kind of vacillate at this point. There are moments, I think, do I really even want to publish a second novel, you know, and there are other moments that right. that I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get the third one done. So it's hard right. to know where I'm going. I will tell you, since mine are about 150,000-word manuscripts, uh, I, I'm not going to be putting out a book a year, that's for sure. So, uh, well, what goes into that? Yeah, so the length, of course, feeds into it. Yes, when you have a 528-page debut, you know, you don't write that a, a book a year. And it reminds me a little bit about... Um, you know, Greg Eels, who likes longer books, and they don't come out of the air. But, Walt, what goes into that thinking? When you're thinking, maybe I can't wait to finish the third, and maybe I never want to publish another book, what kind of informs your, you know, sort of emotional take on that question? Because I think it's a very powerful one. Yeah, it, it really is emotional. I mean, you're hit with, so, uh, you know, uh, um, Kim Howell, uh, whose book came out in, in February, and is, who's the, the head of, the, of Thriller Fest, um, said to me, she said, just wait, uh, all of a sudden your book's going to be here. You've been, you know, we all wait this long time for it to happen, and then boom, it's there, and you're just like overwhelmed. And, and that's exactly what occurred. I don't know what happened to April, because it was just gone, and, and all of a sudden the book was out there, and, and, and like I said, I was doing 16 radio shows. I've still got another half dozen to do, and, um, you know, something like 10 book signings, and, endless emails uh, and demands and, you know, uh, articles that people want you to write. I, I just put one in. I had one that went into military.com last week. I'm writing one for Killer Nashville this week. So the demands become very intensive. Um, and so it, there are mornings you wake up and you think, uh, you know, because I'm not young anymore. You know, I'm getting getting up there. And uh, there are time, it's times you wake up in the morning and you say, 
can I do this another five times? You know, right. can I can I keep doing this for another ten years? Uh, and right. and you think, gosh, I don't know. Um, do I really need to do this at all? I, I've got a book out there that I love and that's being accepted pretty darn well. Uh, right. Do I want to be, you know, do I want to be uh, uh, the next to kill a mockingbird, or do I want to continue to plug right. it out? And so. You know, it vacillates. I'm sure my agent and my editor will will be clear to me when I come up to New York in July and we sit down for lunch that they are expecting more books, but we'll see what happens. You know, I, I'm not committing uh, yeah. anything at the moment. So. I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating question, and you've you've delved into it so well. It's almost the topic of a panel discussion. Let's bounce over to Christina with the same question. The cutaway had, you know, a huge reception when it sold, and you know, you sort of gave backed away from the career in, in news and television, and where do you see yourself in terms of this dimension? Well, I mean, contractually, I have to turn in a manuscript in January 2018. <laughs> okay, so, that's done. So that's, that's, you know, kind of driving things, but it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, I, I, I love just being a part of the conversation about um, mm. about women's characters and Mm-hmm. Women's place and in, in the in I, I you know I'll be honest I think women are kind of treated like crap in this country I mean you know and I think that kind of drives some of the writing I have daughters and I don't I just you know want to have female relationships and I mean look my holy trinity of writers is Megan Abbott Laura Lippman Tana French I love the way they expand the female character. And that's very um, exciting to me. Every time a book of theirs comes out, you know, I pre-order it. Sometimes I pre-order it two or three times from different booksellers, and that kind of stinks. But, um, you know, I um, I just gulped that down, and I would love to be a part of that. So I have a second book that I'm working on, um, Same World of Story. Um, this is a, a mother and daughter, um, professional women. And I get to explore that relationship, and that's really and um, female friendship is very exciting to me. And then mm-hmm. a third book, Dan tells me we'll write when we're done with this contract, and um, he says it's going to be better. I don't know how he knows that, but um, you know we're <laughs> working, and um, I just I think there's a lot, a lot of room for female characters. I think that yeah. the, the crime and the thriller. Um, genre is a wonderful place to really test those boundaries and to um, play with uh, uh, gender roles and um, to explore strong women and heroic women and frightened women and vulnerable women and um, and how they react with men, you know, um, uh, yeah. in positive uh, yeah. ways and negative ways. And um, so I, as long as it feels like our place in the world is vulnerable, which is kind of how it feels right now to me. I mean, I've got a lot of room to write. Yeah, I think that's a great, I mean, in a way, there's another whole reason to write, which is to add a voice to the uh, cultural conversation on, on gender and other issues. So that's fantastic. And Mark, with that, I know you are deep into book three in the Kana Mantra series, and it sounds like there's some exciting potential developments in terms of foreign rights, but tell us a little bit about where you see yourself in this sort of, you know, book a year type writer on one end to the Harper Lee on the other. I would, if I had the time, I would probably like to do about two, uh, perhaps three a year, all depending on time. Wow. I I think that everybody gets this. It's all going to get ideas from us. I'm like everybody else. I just pick them up. But I write them down. I carry a notebook with me at all times. And I write Mm. things down. If if you don't write it down, you will forget it. So I don't, I've got a list of books that I want to write. Uh, and I'm not really that fussed about what order I write them in. And, but, but I work with a publisher and say, okay, what would you like next? And um, after Names of the Dead, I had three ideas. I sat down in the mall and said, which one do you like? And when I, when I explained the London Cage and what the London Cage actually was in real history, she absolutely loved it. So that was an easy one. She said, write the London Cage. Okay. So with that, went back the next time with a couple of ideas and said, I've got this, this, and this. What do I write? She went, this one, the Silk Road. So that's the you know, underground banking and arms trading and all that kind of thing, and people trading. 
um, so they got one. So that's fine. So I've got another three or four. I actually talked about this with him last week. I think that if I had the time, I would probably do about at least two a year. If I could put myself completely to it. Um, but I can't. I've got to... I'm a, I, I work contracts. So I maybe do six months working in bank oil companies uh, just for a six-month period. And then I'll take six months off and write books. So... Um, I, I said what I'm going to do, but after this one, the Silk Road, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. The publisher was saying, don't worry about it, we'll talk about it later. I've just finished the bloody book and send it to me. Yeah, okay. So that's my focus at the moment. After lunch, I'll have a menu of things to choose from. Um, and I, I will probably, at, at least one time a year, because I, I can't stop writing. I love it and I just sit down and do it. Um, so yeah. at least for a year. And I can. I've got an idea for two details, but I've also got some ideas for different, uh, more literary historical fiction books set around um, a male and a female character in uh, 1920s Paris uh, and the Spanish yeah. Civil War. So yeah, it's, 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 it's a, a lovely idea, but I, I'm not going to write it yet because I haven't fleshed it out in my brain yet. In my notebooks, I will keep writing it down, and I know it will be a fantastic story. I just don't know what it's going to be yet, but I'll get there. That would be interesting, actually, to do Connor Montrose in the yeah. historical sense, I think. Interesting. All right. Well, I can say I am thrilled that on the inside thrill, we've been able to have Walt Bragg and Christine Kovac and Mark Legout on the radio with such interesting things to say about being in this business and where the books come from and where they go. Thank you all. We actually have giveaways from all three guests. So you can win a copy of The Cutaway, which is a wonderful blend novel of political intrigue and family, you know, personal kind of redemption and journey. We have a copy of The Red Line from Walt Bragg, which is a World War III epic, but as Walt described it, you know, something that really bends the genre a little bit from where it's been. And Mark Legat's publisher is going to be generous enough to give copies away both of the first Connor Montrose Names of the Dead and the second The London Cage. And I believe Mark is also giving away a very interesting um, box of vintage pencils. We didn't talk about writing process in terms of the testing results, but Mark actually writes longhand. And so I'm inviting all our listeners to tweet at me, Facebook me, you know, during the next couple of weeks. We'll keep these giveaways going. And I would like each author to let us know where uh, readers can discover them, find their books and find them online. So let's start with Christina. Tell us how readers can find you. Um, so in the U.S. and Canada, I guess, um, you can, I guess, find me anywhere. Um, I have a website, ChristinaKovac.com. There's, like, buys all over, and then, you know. In the U.K., um, Serpent's Tale is my publisher. In Germany, I think it's, oh, gosh, um, Penguin. And I think in June comes out in France. So, I mean, I guess, I don't know what the audience is here, but... I think you can buy me Ghana anywhere. And I'm also... But your water. website sounds like... What's that? Oh, um, my website is... Your Christina, website? Yeah. It's com. And they can connect with you that way, and then you can give them information about other places where you happen to be. Absolutely. One of the fun things is I've been getting a lot of emails, so send me an email if you have some comments about the book. Yeah, it's definitely one of the things writers enjoy most. Well, Greg, tell us where readers can find you. And also, I know you're going to be out and about in the next coming weeks. Maybe just want to mention one or two of those appearances in case anyone listening happens to be able to make it. Well, we're going to be in Arizona. Uh, on We'll be in Tucson on the, let me get the date right, 17th, uh, that's the Wednesday, and and Poison uh, Pen in um Phoenix on the 18th. We'll then be in Plano, Texas um, on Saturday the 20th, which is a Dallas suburb. Uh, and then on to Portland to Powell on the 25th. And then Orlando and Tampa and the Litchfield, who will be still coming up in the coming weeks. Um, and where can they find these events, Walt? Where can they um, find your list of events? They should be able to get it on, on waltgrag.com. It's G-R-A-G-G is the last name. Uh, the book, I think the book's only available in English right now, but pretty much all over the world from what I've seen. I know for certain, uh, U.S. and Canada, uh, Great Britain, uh, Australia, I think I saw it in South Africa. You can get an English version, I'm pretty sure in Estonia right now. So 
pretty much anywhere. Um, but they haven't, they haven't gone to, to foreign language on it yet. Uh, but as far as traditional sales, you know, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, every, hopefully every independent bookstore around. Uh, so just go to your traditional places you buy books, and, and you, you'll find it there. Great. And Mark Legat, tell us where readers can find you and connect. Well, in the UK, bookshops, of course, any bookshops. Uh, in Europe, uh, all the European, Amazons, India, all that, uh, Asia as well. Uh, in America, you can buy uh, hand, uh, paperbacks um, from Amazon, because um, we are still looking for um, a US stateside-based publisher, but it is possible to buy uh, from Amazon and iTunes and Kobo and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, you get them online. Any questions, though, you can... Uh, if you go to my website, which is markleggett.com or Facebook or Twitter, I can easily direct you to the, uh, the nearest sale point. And if you want to know about writing the novel longhand, you can also go to markleggett.com. <laughs> well, oh. so wonderful, Christina, Mark, and Walt, thank you so much for joining me on Inside Thrill. We are truly thrilled to have you and have you as members of the ITW community. Also very grateful to John Rob for hosting us via Suspense Magazine and Suspense Radio. Have a wonderful rest of your day and Inside Thrill Radio listeners, thank you for joining us. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, Jenny. Thank Bye, you. Jenny. Cheers, Jenny. Take care. Bye.